0: This is Palm Sunday. We remember today that Jesus came down from the Mount of Olives, mounted on a donkey, and rode into Jerusalem. It seems like such a strange thing to do. Even in his time, it seems strange. But I was thinking, what would that look like in our day? Uh, The best I could come up with is imagining Queen Elizabeth coming out of Buckingham Palace to go in a royal procession And she heads out of the gates of Buckingham Palace on a moped. (laughs) It sounds like the making of a Geico commercial, isn't it? Surprising. (laughs) But I want to say to you that what Jesus is doing is very intentional. And he is identifying himself as the promised Messiah to the people of Israel. And actually... He's going into the city to give his life as a payment for our sins. I am feeling today, even as I just watch a simple video, in my heart, just some of the weight and the emotion of what Jesus did for us. These are real events, people. These aren't religious stories. A couple of years after the 9 11 attacks on the World Trade Center, I was in New York City uh, attending a music conference with my wife at the Brooklyn Tabernacle. Our hotel, however, was in lower Manhattan, just a few uh, blocks from the site of where the Twin Towers once stood, and I remember us walking up there. And at the time, they just had a chain link fence around, and you could look through, and we stared at the two big, giant square holes in the ground where the buildings had once stood. And uh, we walked around the site on the far side, just off of Liberty Street. The only fire station that actually is located on ground zero is called the 10 House. And uh, we walked past that fire station, and uh, there's a memorial there to several of Ladder Company 10 and Engine Company 10 who gave their lives on that day trying to rescue people and help them. And our hearts were moved. And uh, I know you've probably been to similar places or things that have moved you in your life. And I have to say that I'm moved thinking about the events that transpired some 2,000 years ago. Some scholars believe that it was in A.D. 30 that Jesus actually rode into the city. That would make it 1,985 years ago. But the events actually took place, and I pray today that the Holy Spirit would just help us to feel (laughs) the weight of what God has done for us today. One of the big ideas I want you to go away with today is simply this. I want you to remember the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God. You know, theologians recognize something that's called this. It's called the decrees of God. And what they say is, how they define that is, God has eternal plans that he has decreed from eternity past to carry out. And he's even now working out those plans. And in the events that took place on that first Palm Sunday, he is working out an eternal plan. In fact, the scripture you see in front of you there is an example of that. Jesus is referred to as the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. I'm gonna say something to our computer guy. You know what, it's not your fault. For some reason, the computer, when you click on one slide, it's one slide ahead. So I don't know why it's doing that. But um, that's it, that's the one I'm on, (laughs) okay. (laughs) I love technology, I love technology. (laughs) I, I often say that I'd like to live before electricity and modern technology until I have my hot shower in the morning. I say, no, this is good. This is good that I have this. But one of the, the Bible says that Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What does it mean by that? It means that even before the God, God created the whole world, it was already his plan that Jesus would come and give his life as a payment for sins. And God is working out that plan right now in this holy week that we remember. There's no doubt that Jesus knew what was going to happen to him when he went in Jerusalem. He said this to his disciples previous to coming in. He said, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. He said that to them before he went into the city. Jesus is not a helpless victim of events that are spiraling out of his control. No, (laughs) no. And as we will see closely in a minute, he's actually provoking the very events that will lead to his death. I just want to pray for us. And I want to pray that God would open our hearts to really comprehend what he's done for us. Please humble yourself for just a moment. Lord, we are moved when we remember these events that took place beginning on Palm Sunday. And I pray, Jesus, that you would help us comprehend the depth and the meaning of what place there. I pray that we would not just know it intellectually, but it would penetrate to our hearts and even to our wills. I pray that you would help us. Thank you, Jesus, for willingly riding into Jerusalem that day so that I could be forgiven of my sins and a, a way could be made for me and for all of us in this room. We worship you. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, what your spirit would say to us today, I pray in your name, amen, amen. I just want to read Luke's account of the first Palm Sunday, it's found in Luke chapter 19, if you have your Bible, if you'd like to turn to your, in your Bible, Luke 19, I'm going to start at the 28th verse. It says this, and when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. They always say going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem's up on a hill, okay? Just so you know that. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, the lord has need of it so those who were sent away those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them and as they were untying the colt its owners said to them why are you untying the colt and they said the lord has need of it and they brought it to jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt they sat set jesus on it and as he rode along they spread their cloaks on the road The very stones would cry out. (laughs) The text says that Jesus drew near to Bethphage and Bethany. These are small towns on the east side of the mount of olives you might remember that bethany was the home of mary and martha and lazarus and uh, jesus had recently just raised lazarus from the dead there he often stayed with them there the mount of olives is directly east of jerusalem and and jerusalem as i said was on a mount so you had the mount of olives jerusalem mount and in between was the kidron valley i just want to show you a picture this is a modern day view from the Mount of Olives looking toward Jerusalem. You can see the, the, hill, the road going down into the Kidron Valley, and then there was a path going up, and you see the old city there. You see that gold dome. That's a Muslim shrine today called the Dome of the Rock. It is located at the very spot where Solomon's temple used to stand. Now, this temple that was built in Solomon's day was destroyed when Babylon conquered Jerusalem in 586 B.C., But after a 70-year exile, a remnant of the people came back to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple in this spot. It was a smaller temple. But in the days of Jesus, uh, uh, Herod the Great had remodeled the temple and expanded the temple. And here's a model of what it might have looked like in Jesus' day. It was a glorious structure. So instead of that dome of the rock, you can picture Jesus on the Mount of Olives looking down into the city of Jerusalem, seeing this temple structure there. And Jesus, uh, from the Mount of Olives, tells two of his disciples to go into a village in front of you. Now take note of that. Okay? They had not arrived at the place. Jesus tells them to go get a donkey, but it wasn't like they found him on the way. Oh, go back to that village. Remember there's a donkey back there. Or here's a donkey right here. Let's go get that donkey. He says, go to a village in front of you. And he says, you're going to see a a young donkey there, a colt. Untie it and bring it to me. And if anyone asks you, just tell them the Lord needs it. And they went away and everything happened just the way Jesus had said. Now that drives some people who want to take the supernatural things out of the Bible. It drives them crazy. And so they explain it away. They say, well, Jesus must have made previous arrangements with the owners of the donkey, and therefore he just didn't tell the disciples about it. But friends, the, the whole point of the Scripture, the intent of the Scripture is to show that God is sovereignly moving through these events. They're not happenstance. Even in this picture, it's to show you these are no accident. This is not an accident. He foreknew and provided that donkey for Jesus in this way to show that he is sovereign over these events. In fact, when Jesus rides this donkey down, I want to uh, tell you that it's like throwing a lighted match in uh, just a puddle of gasoline. And I want to explain why. Some 63 years before Jesus was born, 63 B.C., the Romans conquered uh, Jerusalem, they put an end to the independent Jewish state, and the Jewish people just really hated being under the authority of a pagan military dictatorship. They yearned, listen to me, their people yearned for the promised messianic deliverer who would deliver them from this oppression to Rome and reestablish the throne of David. Whenever you hear the term in the Bible the throne of David he was the the greatest king in Israel's history and they're saying we want to return to our own self-rule we want the the king of the, the messianic king to rule on the throne of David and set us free from these Romans even though the people had come back from their exile hundreds of years previous This golden age predicted by the prophets had never materialized. And in Jesus' day, they held on to the the hope that the messianic deliverer would come. You know one of the scriptures they held on to was this one in Zechariah. It's in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. I'm going to read the first one you're very familiar with. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Rejoice. Why would you rejoice? I'll tell you in a minute. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Now that one we know very well. But look at the next verse. I, God is speaking, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, Ephraim's up in the northern part of Israel, and the war horse from Jerusalem down in the southern part of of Israel, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he, this messianic deliverer, shall speak peace to the nations, and what will he do? His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth." When, he, when God says, I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim, what he's saying is when the Messiah comes, you won't need your traditional battle uh, instruments of war. You won't need chariots, Ephraim. You, you won't need your battle bows because Messiah is going to come and he's going to put those things away and he's supernaturally going to rule from David's throne. Now, what do you think the people would understand that day when Jesus was riding the donkey down the Mount of Olives. What do you think they were thinking? They're not thinking He's going there to die. They are thinking He's going to fulfill Zechariah 9.10. He's going to be the one to deliver us from Rome. But friends, the Old Testament prophecies also said this that the Messiah would be a suffering servant. Isaiah said he would be the one rejected by people, the one who would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. You see, God gave both of these pictures in the Old Testament, but in his sovereignty, do you know God is sovereign over what he reveals and when he reveals it? He did not reveal clearly in the Old Testament how the suffering servant Messiah and how the reigning king Messiah would work out. We look back and we say, oh, it's very clear now. (laughs) In his first coming, he came to be the suffering servant to pay the price for our sins. And when he comes the second time, he will be the reigning king Jesus. But in their day, It was very hard for them to to understand what was going on here. How could he be a suffering servant? And in their mind, what do you think they clung to? (laughs) The suffering servant? No. They clung to Messiah as the reigning coming king. And listen, this explains why. When you read the Gospel accounts of Jesus, why is Jesus always telling people, don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah? Doesn't that seem strange to you? It, when we read it, he heals somebody and he says, don't tell anybody. In fact, even when Peter makes this great confession, when, remember Jesus asked, who do the people say that I am and so forth? And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, I believe you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus affirms that. He says, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, Flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed that to you. But he strictly warned all of his disciples, the scripture says, not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Why? Because the way Jesus says it, his time had not yet come. His time had not yet come, and he knew the people wanted the King Messiah, the Deliverer. But now, on Palm Sunday, some 2,000 years ago, everything has changed because his time has come. And he's there to give his life. And so now through the sovereign orchestration, the eternal plans of God, working through the events of human history. Can you believe how big God is? Romans and Jewish religious leaders, and he works through all of it to bring about what he wants to bring about. And so Jesus gets on that donkey, folks. Folks knowing that the people will hail him as the Messiah, and he is the Messiah. It's not a false thing, but he knew that once they found out that he's not there to deliver them from Rome, they would reject him. All eyes were on him as he makes his way down the Mount of Olives. Large crowds of people gather on the roads. I want you to picture it. I think it could be bigger than the Cavs celebration downtown Cleveland. (laughs) Some scholars say that there was more than two and a half million people in the Jerusalem area that had pil- made the pilgrimage in to celebrate the Passover. And they start to hear, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. He's coming down from the Mount of Olives. I believe people went out in droves. And they lined that route, that mile and a half or so, and they lined it. And as the Bible says that they were praising him, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. You notice none of them say, blessed is the suffering servant Messiah. Hmm. Blessed is the king, who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Mark's account says they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. What are they expecting? This is the Messiah. He's going to set us free from Rome. He's going to establish the earthly kingdom that is promised by all of the prophets. They lay their cloaks down in front of him. They throw palms down in front of him. All signs of royalty. And Jesus, my friends, is on a collision course. <laughs> with the expectations of the people. And it didn't take long, I believe, for them to be deeply disappointed. And let me show you why. Here's the Messiah. Picture it coming down the Mount of Olives. I don't know how long it takes to go a mile and a half on a donkey, but it, it's a little bit of time, okay? And he comes down and then he gets, comes up and he goes in through the, the gate there and he, and he heads into Jerusalem. I'm sure as he went, people started to follow And they followed him into the temple. And what is the first thing Jesus does when he gets into the temple? When you put the accounts together, this is what it says in Mark chapter 11. Just as he comes into Jerusalem, Mark says, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. What? What? You, you talk about anticlimactic. <laughs> the king has entered Jerusalem and he walks into the temple and he looks around and he walks out through the crowd of people. <laughs> right back out the city gate, right back up the Mount of Olives, right back to Bethany to spend the night. I don't know, if I was in the crowd, <laughs> I'd be going, what? No? What's going on? What? No, speak to us, say something. No stirring speech was given. He didn't try to rally the troops and say, I'm here to deliver you from Rome. No, he walked in, he looked around at the temple, and he walked out. And I believe that many of those crowds were stunned. And deeply disappointed. I believe it was the beginning of a week. You, you do you often wonder why some in the crowd could praise him on Sunday and say, crucify him on Friday? Are you getting a better picture? So maybe they said, okay, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's let's wait for the next day. So the next day he comes into the city. He doesn't decry the Romans, he, he cleanses the temple. He he kicks out all the merchants. Everybody is trying to make a buck off the Passover. Get out of here. You're turning my father's house into a den of thieves. Somebody tries to push the point with Jesus. They try to to ask him this question. "Uh, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Can we talk a little bit about Rome? And Jesus says, well... Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. Oh, I bet they love that answer. And what do you think the crowds would finally think when they saw Jesus bound and beaten in the custody of the Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate. What do you think they'd think? Many of them turned on him, obviously, and deduced this isn't the one. He's just another false messiah. Now, before we're too hard on this crowd, I want you to think about something. What do you and I do when God does not act in a way we think he should? Is it not common among all of us to only see what we want to see and only hear what we want to hear? But could this story be a lesson to us today that we would be a group of people When things like this happen that we don't understand would take this attitude. There must be something more going on here that I don't understand. Oh, that we would be a people that say God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are His ways higher than my ways and His thoughts higher than my thoughts. There's just something I cannot understand. I want to say to you this. I want to encourage you. God is often often working out His eternal purposes and sometimes that even works through things that we will not understand. But as you live with the tension of things you do not understand, hear me, would you hold fast to the things you do understand? As you live with the tension of things you do not understand in life, would you hold fast to the things that you do understand and that God has given you understanding in? And in this story, there shouldn't be one of us in this room that does not understand this. Jesus entered Jerusalem to meet our need. All throughout the Bible, the foundational truth is that humanity needs God. We need him in every way. We need him for our existence. We need him for rain and for sun, for food. We need him for the air that we breathe. And we need him most of all for the salvation of our souls. We need him so that we can be forgiven. We need a way that we can be made right with God. And Jesus, my friends, is that way. From the beginning to the end of our lives, we need God. Do you know that people who recognize this, in the Bible, they're called poor in spirit. They recognize they need God. They need him in every way possible. And the promise to those kind of people is that theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. It is amazing that in the day we live in, there's people in the church, outside of the church, that fail to recognize their need for God. Jesus wrote a letter to one of those churches in La- called Laodicea in the first century. And he says to them, these are church people, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. He says, I, I urge you, Jesus says, come to me for righteousness that only I can provide. It's my righteousness, and I can clothe you so that your spiritual nakedness can be covered before this holy God. (laughs) I like the writings of Max Lucado. He's written this, and uh, I came across it again. It came to mind as I was preparing. I just want to read it to you. He He writes this. He says, For thousands of years, using his wit and charm, Man has tried to be friends with God, and for thousands of years he had let God down more than he had lifted him up. Even the holiest of heroes sometimes forgot whose side they were on. Some of the scenarios in the Bible look more like the adventures of Sinbad the Sailor than stories for vacation Bible school. Adam adorned in fig leaves and stains of forbidden fruit. Moses, throwing a staff and a temper tantrum. King Saul, looking into a crystal ball for the will of God. Noah, drunk and naked in his own tent. These are the chosen ones of God? This is the royal lineage of a king? Why didn't God give up? Why didn't he let the globe spin off its axis? Even after generations of people had spit in his face, he still loved them. After a nation of chosen ones had stripped him naked and ripped his incarnated flesh, he still died for them. Even today, after billions have chosen to prostitute themselves before the pimps of power, fame, and wealth, he still waits for them. It's inexplicable. It doesn't have a drop of logic nor a thread of rationality, and yet it is that very irrationality that gives the gospel its greatest defense. For only God could love like that—blood-stained royalty, a God with tears, a Creator with a heart. God became Earth's mockery to save His children. How absurd to think that such nobility would go to such poverty. to share such a treasure with such thankless souls. But he did. He did. I don't know where you're at uh, spiritually today. I don't know if by faith you've come to put your faith in Jesus Christ. But I can say with certainty today that his arms are open wide. He will forever bear the marks of his crucifixion. And his arms are open wide to anyone who would come. And his gracious invitation still stands today. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. You can come to me and drink. Because whoever believes in me, Jesus says, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. If you want that today, just in a few moments as we sing, you can reach out to God. And you can reach out to Jesus Christ and receive him and the work that he did during this holy week some 2,000 years ago and have it applied to your life, your sin-stained, pitiful, spiritually speaking life. And he can clothe you with his righteousness (laughs) and give you the gift of eternal life. Oh, don't, don't leave this place. What a beautiful day to give your life to Jesus Christ. Palm Sunday, 2018. What a beautiful thing to do. And one closing thought, one little thought before we close. It's often missed in the story. The fact that Jesus came for our need is very clear, isn't it? I don't think any of us here uh, would fail to understand that. But what's interesting is that Jesus had a need, and it's written into the story. Jesus had a need. In this case, he had the need of a donkey. He told his disciples, you know, when you go, if the owners say, why are you taking it? What was his response? Tell them, the Lord has need of it. <laughs> That's a strange thing. Think about that for a minute. We know God is the God of the whole universe. He created heavens and the earth. He could have provided that donkey any way he wanted to. <laughs> he could have created a donkey, you know, right on the spot. But he chose to send two of his disciples and use the owners of this donkey to fulfill his work of entering into Jerusalem to die. I take this as symbolic of the fact that God, in his sovereign plans, wants to use all of us. He wants to use all of us in his work. His need is not like ours. We, ours is out of absolute necessity. His is a choice. He is sovereignly willed that whatever he's going to do in the world, he's going to do through his people. And he wants to use you and me and anyone who will humble themselves and be willing to be used to be his ambassadors in this dark world, telling people of the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for them. Cory ten Boom was one of those kind of followers of Jesus. If you don't know the name, Cory ten Boom was a Dutch Christian who was imprisoned, her and her family. She went to Ravensbrück concentration camp during World War II for hiding Jews. She survived the war, although uh, her sister Betsy was uh, died there in the camp that she was in. She wrote this about Palm Sunday. She said, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey, and everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments on the road and singing praises, do you think that for one moment it ever entered the mind of that donkey that any of that was for him? But she goes on to say this. If I can be the donkey on which Jesus Christ rides in his glory, I give him all the praise and all the honor. Jesus still needs a donkey to ride on. He needs the surrendered heart of grateful people to allow Jesus to be enthroned on the throne of their lives and hearts so that he might ride in his glory. What a beautiful day today to give yourself afresh and anew to that. And if you've, if you've strayed or you wandered or you're just hungering for more, <laughs> the Savior's arms or open wide. He still has need of people who will serve him with all of their hearts. Care not what other people think. He needs older people like me. He needs middle-aged people. He needs young people. Students here, he needs you. (laughs) He wants to use you. Give your heart totally to him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. Uh, I told them I probably wasn't going to pray afterwards, but so if they come, they're here. (laughs) Thank thank the Lord to hear. But we're going to sing a very simple song. It's really a song of invitation that says, Oh, come to the altar. His arms, the Father's arms are open wide. I'm going to ask you, if you sense that the Spirit is calling you to more, whether it's a call to give your heart for the first time to Jesus Christ, or maybe a call to rededicate your life. Maybe you're living life like, like as a Christian here at church, but at work it's a different story. And the Spirit's just saying, no, I want all of you. I have more for you than that. Maybe you just sense that God wants to use your life in a greater way. I'm going to invite you to come. This is symbolic. This, this isn't really an altar, but any place, you know what, any place that you offer a sacrifice to God is an altar. And in these humble moments today as we close, if you feel such a need, I would ask you just as Jesus stepped out and rode into Jerusalem on your behalf, I'm going to ask you just to step out of your seat if you're able and just stand here and pray and offer to God your heart. His arms, I want you to picture this place as a place where His arms are open wide to you. Let me pray and I'll sing. Father, I thank you for your great plan that you had already had from eternity past, that you would enter Jerusalem. You sovereignly used the Roman government. You used the expectations of people. You used everything, God, just so that it would happen just the way You want. You did so without sacrificing Your glory, Your holiness. and In fact, You, you put it on display. And in these humble moments as we close, I pray that You would bring all to a deeper place with You. And throughout this week, we would turn our hearts toward you in greater surrender and love. In your name I pray. Amen.